podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quant finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, quant finance editor of Risk.net. For this episode, I'm talking to Claudio Albanese, who is the CEO of Global Valuation Limited in London. Hi, Claudio, and thanks for joining me. Hi, Mauro. The subject of this podcast is your latest work, the Darwinian Theory of Model Risk. The paper is online on our website, Risk.net, and it's printed in the July edition of Risk. The title already hints at the fact that this is a rather unusual and original take on model risk. You look at the matter in terms of model selection and model survival, which, you, which are obviously a reference to Darwin. And of course, you're also looking at the possible consequences on the PNL. Uh, we should point out that you're not the only author of this. Uh, Stéphane Crepe of the University of Paris, Université de Paris, uh, is your co-author, and so is Stefano Iabichino of JP Morgan. Now, could you tell us what is the purpose of this work? And in summary, what are the results you found? Well, we have been looking at the ways to understand model risk on a forward-looking basis, as opposed to backward-looking, meaning as opposed to do a post-mortem analysis when blow-ups happen, we have been looking at ways to uh, anticipate them. And uh, as we went through this analysis, we realized that uh, uh, there is some Darwinian principle uh, in place there. I mean, when, when we look at the universe of all models, the ones that survive in uh, practical use are the ones with very specific characteristics, which... Uh, uh, I mean, are easy to identify. I mean, uh, at the end, when, when you understand them, I mean, everybody would agree, they have to be the most profitable ones. I mean, at least in the short term. Uh, so among all the bad models out there, the most profitable ones are the ones that uh, 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 survive and establish themselves as market standards. Well, of course, if you use a wrong model, then uh, you have wrong hedges, then uh, you have a blow up. So uh, the, uh, the, 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 the caveat of this uh, Darwinian theory is then at the end, uh, the models that blow up are the bad ones that survive and are profitable uh, in the short term. So that's, that's at the end of the moral of the story. <laughs> we will see all of that in more details in the, uh, in the coming minutes. But, uh... Uh, it strikes me that for the past decades or so, you've been working on valuation adjustments and uh, you have published with us before on the subject. So how did you come uh, to work on model risk, which is a, a very different uh, aspect of finance? And in particular, your, your paper uh, focuses on uh, a particular exotic product, which is callable range approvals. Well, I mean... In, in, Yes, as you know, I've been working on XVAs. I mean, the, the approach that I took to XVAs was that, I mean, it became clear uh, when I started uh, in, in that area that uh, there was uh, uh, an opportunity to uh, create models that would scale much better uh, than uh, the, the usual ones for large portfolios if one used uh, uh, a new type of approach uh, based on uh, tensor algebras. I mean, that, that was my original idea back in 2005, use tensor algebras uh, in finance. And uh, 
Uh, well, uh, back then, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, it ended up that tensor algebras became extremely popular in artificial intelligence, machine learning. Everything we know about machine learning is based on that. And uh, uh, in risk and pricing, on the other hand, I mean, I just uh, made uh, some uh, inroads uh, uh, myself, but it, it didn't really uh, uh, become a, a mainstream tool. So uh, it so happened two years ago that I was trying my hands uh, in other areas with the same idea. Uh, how can I use tensor algebras for exotic derivatives? And I had one particular client that uh, came to me and said, well, uh, I'd like you know you to, to try this out. Uh, RIS magazine just published a nice article on uh, collaborant accruals. Uh, they say that there was a bloodshed that might be another one coming up. What can you tell me about it? I mean, right, I mean, if, <laughs> uh, if the idea as you uh, presented is so general, you should be able to say something about this thing as well. Now, I was not an expert on collaborant accruals at all, but uh, nevertheless, I coded them up and uh, the, the, uh, the results in the paper are what came out. So when we think of Darwin, we think of natural selection and survival of the fittest. What is the connection with collaborant range accruals? What, what does it have to do with them? Well, in the specific case of collaborant accruals, uh, we, we, we have to see, you know, what, what are the market practices, how uh, people trade them and uh, uh, which models are using. So we have to go down in the detail. But before I do that, I mean, let's explain what collaborative accruals are in the first place to, uh, to, to, uh, to the audience. I mean, a, a range accrual is an instrument that uh, is defined on a range. Uh, and in the interest rate domain, typically these range of pools have very low maturities, like 15, 20, 25 years. And so there is a range for interest rates, for <clears throat> and interest rates are, are, are measured in terms of an index. So, so it could be like the 10-year swap rate. As long as the 10-year swap rate is within that range, let's say between zero and 3%, the uh, bank will pay a certain amount every month or every quarter. And when the index uh, goes out of that range, then the counterparties will pay. Now, before we you know, go further, let's, let's try to understand why these instruments are trading in the first place or why they were trading. They were extremely popular when we wrote the article, which was in 2019. Well, back then, uh, uh, what was happening was that uh, uh, there was a lot of demand in the market by natural hedgers like uh, mortgage lenders um, and uh, insurance firms for floors on the 10-year swap rate at zero. They were afraid of that particular scenario because uh, because of the natural exposure of their portfolio. So uh, they wanted to hedge themselves with, with floors. Uh, before 2019, what was happening was that the bond dealers uh, were uh, satisfying this demand directly because the bond dealers uh, are on the other side of uh, uh, the, the, the equation in terms of risk management that they profit when interest rates fall. 
Um, but uh, in 2000, the period 2016 to 19, uh, these bond dealers would not meet in the supply. So uh, banks had to step in and act as intermediaries. So there was this big market, big uh, demand for uh, uh, zero floors. And range across were a way to meet that demand. So the idea there was that banks would issue this range across to hedge funds uh, or to investors. And then they would hedge them by writing uh, uh, digital uh, swaptions at zero and at the top end of the boundary. And in particular, those floors at zero were very marketable to those hedges for which uh, there was a strong demand. So the idea for range of course was uh, to issue these instruments and then uh, uh, seize a premium uh, when uh, uh, then uh, one would turn around and, and hedge them. Uh, so it was very important within uh, this uh, uh, structuring exercise that uh, uh, the hedges were done correctly and also that the models were uh, uh, generating hedges on those uh, digital swaptions in, um, in, in ratios that would, uh, would make them profitable because the profitability was really linked to the hedging strategy. So um, for a bank, where, where is the risk? Where, where can it go badly wrong? Well, the risk is in overhedging, obviously. I mean, uh, uh, there is an appetite to sell uh, a lot of zero floors. Uh, but if the model that one uses is such that uh, it misjudges the uh, uh, the hedge ratios and induces the, the trader to sell more zero floors than required, then uh, uh, to, to hedge the, the, the range of floor, then uh, the, the bank ends up with a naked exposure on those zero floors. Uh, and uh, worse than that, I mean, the, the naked exposure is not recognized as a naked exposure, it's, uh, it's uh, thought of as a hedged exposure. Uh, but uh, obviously, if there is more risk, then uh, when push comes to shove and uh, uh, reality strikes in, uh, then, uh, uh, then the faulty model will reveal itself and the, the unedged nature of those zero force will reveal itself and, and, and then you are going to have a blow up. Yeah, but and this, I guess, has got uh, a lot to do with the gamma position of uh, the bank and their books. And uh, the bloodbath happens basically when dealers are caught in the gamma trap that is created by their own hedging. Is that correct? Well, that, that's actually a very interesting uh, question. Well, because also the, the gamma depends itself from the models. And as you go from a high quality model to a low quality one, uh, such as the Hull-White, one thing that happens there is that uh, you have a perception of gamma, which is way too optimistic, meaning uh, the, the, <coughs> the, um, the, 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 uh, the models that are mostly used to mismanage these kind of instruments are very rosy in a way. They give you a, a, a gamma which is largely positive. So whenever you make any hedging mistake either one way or the other, you uh, stand to monetize in a positive way of the mistake. So to gain out of the mistake. 
On top of that, I mean, a, 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 a whole white model where interest rates can go really deep negative is such that uh, you are um, always hoping in a way that interest rates fall uh, to minus five, minus 10, minus 15%, because that situation is very rich for the bank. So uh, not only the gamma is positive, but also the call um, optionality is not exercised uh, as soon as it should be. And uh, um, that, that's, that's what the signal of a bad model is. However, you are perfectly right. Uh, when you get yourself uh, very close to the floor itself, then uh, you do observe uh, all the characteristics of a gamma trap uh, because uh, uh, you are forced to unwind other, uh, and when you unwind, you have to unwind to other dealers, you have to go against the market, and as a consequence, you have uh, all the bad, uh, the bad features of a deep negative gamma hit you while your models are very happy telling you that gamma is positive. I see. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, this is a, a particular paper in the sense that it's the first one in risk history that has got animations in it, uh, obviously uh, in the online version only. Um, could you tell us what they represent and uh, how they are visually uh, reach of information? What can you observe from those animations? Yeah, I mean, as I, as, I, as I mentioned, the reason why I got into this was to uh, try to figure out whether these tensor algebras had something to contribute to model risk and uh, uh, animations is what came out of it. Uh, I was not a particular expert on trading strategies for callable range of rules. Um, I, I, I became one by uh, creating those animations and looking at them, looking at them over and over uh, to see uh, the various things that are important there, which is uh, to what extent the model was overvaluing, where uh, was the negative cross gamma pointing, uh, how the, uh, uh, um, the, the corruption strategy, I mean, the, the termination strategy was uh, uh, being affected by model choice, uh, and so all of these things, um, I mean, can be conceptualized. I mean, they, they kind of make sense. Uh, uh, they do uh, come through the equations, but the equations are not nearly as intuitive and informative as uh, a full-fledged uh, 3D animation where uh, you can uh, see what's happening and also drill down uh, you can ask questions, you can turn things around, you can produce other angles and, and, and come up with your conclusions. I, I thought that these visualizations are very useful. And also, they are also uh, understandable by a, a, far big, a far wider audience uh, in, in a way. I mean, because uh, the, the underlying equations for the models uh, require a very specialist knowledge, require a PhD in maths or physics or something of the kind. Uh, the trading strategy itself requires uh, a lot of specific knowledge by, by the traders that do this professionally. Uh, but the, the animations, on the other hand, uh, are just fun to watch. They are cartoons. So they, uh, they are immediately understood by, by and, 
any, anyone with uh, a general understanding of, of derivatives. They are. They look really good. And actually, if I may suggest the readers uh, to look at them in full screen because um, they are actually very rich of uh, alliance and information and in full screen you can actually grasp uh, better than in the small box that they have in the PDF. Um, what software did you use for that? Well, as a matter of fact, I've been using software that Uncle Sam uh, 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 created it's open source. It's called VTK. It's beautiful, and it's at the base of uh, all sorts of software packages in the medical sector. When you do a, a cut screen or a sonogram, there's VTK behind. Uh, when uh, uh, um, the automobile automobile sector or in, in the aviation industry they simulate a wind tunnel, they do a lot of VTK uh, uh, work. Uh, in finance, VTK has not been uh, as uh, used, uh, uh, I think because you do need a tremendous amount of very high quality data to feed into it in order to really render it uh, effectively. Uh, but as I said, I mean, my, my, my methods were giving uh, data of sufficient quality, so uh, using VTK was a natural choice. I see. Uh, going back to uh, the Darwinian side of, uh, of this story, uh, actually, you mentioned the principle and you, um, you describe in the paper two in particular that I think are quite general. Uh, could, you, could you explain those to us? Um, having looked at this uh, uh, specific case of collaborator course, we, what we noticed was that uh, uh, two things were happening. I mean, the... the uh, as I said, uh, the way these uh, trades are traded was that you would use some kind of high quality model, a multi-factor LMM model to find a price for uh, the, the hedge fund. And then one second after the deal landed on your book, you would switch to the whole white model. And, and what happened in that moment was that uh, uh, there was uh, a overvaluation to record because the Hull White model was overvalued. Now, in order for uh, a model to give rise to higher edge ratios for those floors that we want to sell off, obviously you needed the overvaluation. I mean, the overvaluation is basically the value of the excessive edges. Uh, so it was, it's an important fact that, I mean, if you want to trade an exotic derivative and, and uh, overhedge uh, to have more profits up front, then you have to overvalue. Okay, so that, that's one principle. Um, a, 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 the first Darwinian principle says that a bad model, if it has to stand a chance to survive and imply overhedging, it has to overvalue. Uh, but then there is, uh, uh, the question is, uh, what happens afterwards, right? Because uh, you overvalue, uh, you have to put in capital reserve the delta in value, and then uh, you see uh, a, a process of alpha leakage, meaning your, uh, your trade will, will lose money, uh, and the losses will then be absorbed by that, uh, that, that model risk reserve. But... Uh, um, a, 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 um, a, a trade that lose money, uh, loses money doesn't really look very good uh, in terms of profitability. Uh, so you need the second, uh, uh, the second principle there, which is that, that uh, uh, 
loss, uh, the regular loss is compensated by gains uh, that uh, in particular are realized uh, by the overaging strategy. Meaning if you are selling more um, out of the money floors than you would otherwise, then those floors that are struck at many different maturities once every uh, month or so going forward in the future, many of those will expire worthless. So you will mm -hmm. basically be harvesting the premium of your excessive hedges. And if you do that, you do create a stream of profits. Now, the second principle is that, uh, that a regular harvest of profits has to compensate for the alpha leakage on the valuation itself. If that happens, then you manufacture a strategy that has uh, regular profits uh, for quite a while. Well, until when, of course, you hit the lower bound of the range, in which case, uh, uh, in which case, hell breaks loose uh, and, 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 and you have a blow up. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, yes, but otherwise the, the strategy is very, is very profitable. The combination of the two uh, principles gives rise to very profitable strategies in the short term. In the short term. Um, so uh, this leads me to, to ask, where else is this applicable? So we, you explained why this is uh, applicable to a callable range of rules. But is there any other exotic products or risk management model or um, portfolio strategies that... Uh, might be a domain for this uh, for this approach. Well, I mean, I have two answers to that. I mean, this particular concept that uh, uh, structured products uh, are designed in such a way to meet uh, the requirements of natural hedgers is very uh, common, uh, and uh, uh, in that case, you do want to. Uh, to, to, to hedge. I mean, so if you, have a, if you have the ability to choose a bad model, you're not forced to choose a high quality model. So you have a, a big range of bad models to choose and you uh, have this uh, opportunity to be quite profitable by over hedging, then that's exactly what you will do. And so in that situation, and that's a situation that is common with autocallables, it's, it's, it's common with many other structured products, then you do want to overhedge and you want to overvalue. Uh, so the, 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 the features are really quite in common with that of callable range rules. But there is a, a broader proposition that you can also look at uh, other situations that are perhaps unrelated to exotic derivatives, so where you have uh, portfolio strategies, where you have uh, 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 any, any other situation you can imagine. If you have, uh, a decision maker has the ability to choose to use a low quality model as opposed to high quality one, for one reason or another, perhaps because he says, well, uh, the low quality model is the only one that my risk management systems will handle. Um, it's the only one that is realistic. So now I have this catalog of low quality models. I have to choose one. Well, I mean, you can bet that the choice of the low quality model is going to be the one that uh, suits best uh, the, um, uh, the, the particular utility function of the actor that, that makes the decision. Uh, this, is, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this has to be expected in a way. And uh, do you think this approach will help detecting 
situations in which this happens, in which overhedging happens. And uh, do the visualization actually, uh, would they flag it up even faster? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that I think what the visualizations do is to uh, allow a, a broad general audience of risk managers to understand the details of a trading strategy and quant model choices that uh, um, uh, that otherwise would would stay rather hidden. Uh, uh, so yes, I mean, visualization, I believe, are, are, are a very useful way of communicating this. But of course, I mean, they can also be used uh, uh, in, in another way. I mean, uh, if you are trading exotic derivatives, there are very good ways to do them. I mean, ways of not taking uh, advantage of uh, the ability to, to, to choose a bad model. I mean, there are not only bad actors out there, there are also lots of very good actors uh, among, among the trading community. And, and the good actors also could use these visualization tools to better analyze their, their, their strategies and uh, uh, look at the impact of a model choice. And uh, to conclude, what is the next step of this research? Are you expanding it to, to a further analysis? Well, I think there is, uh, uh, I mean, one aspect of it is uh, to uh, have a, a diagnosis of model risk and the implications, as you mentioned, but you can go further uh, on in this direction. You can ask, uh, um, is a way to do model risk that is more forward looking, which detects uh, the impact of model choice on hedging strategies, and on uh, uh, the possibility of blow-ups in the future, uh, going to have to have an impact on uh, modernist capital, for instance. Uh, the way modernist capital is typically done nowadays is that, well, if you overvalue uh, by degrading the quality of your model, you uh, have to set aside in modernist the excess value. Uh, but if... Uh, by going to a lower model, you also justify overhedging and uh, you um, create the possibility of a blow up. Uh, a, a more uh, risk sensitive uh, approach to model risk capital would also be useful. And, and in this situation, uh, we are thinking of uh, uh, dipping our toes in the direction of HVAs, I mean, the hedging valuation adjustments that has, has recently been introduced in this magazine in relation to, to transaction costs. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, we, we think that the relation with transaction costs is very suitable. I mean, transaction costs is very much related to, to gammas and uh, uh, gammas, of course, are a part of uh, the, uh, our concerns. I mean, transaction costs are particularly high when the gamma is negative. So that's one of our concerns. And definitely we want to go further in that direction, looking at the model risk and how it's reflected uh, how the model choices are reflected into transaction cost projections. But there is also the additional uh, element there, which is the blow up. I mean, uh, if you have a possibility of uh, regular profits followed by blow up at the end, that should also be uh, quantified into an HVA. And, and so if we manage to have a good way of capturing all of this risk into a single capital number, then what you're gonna do is to basically suppress 
the use of bad models and you know, motivate uh, people to use good models, which at the end is, is really the final objective of, of our work. Indeed, indeed. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your uh, um, thinking of HVA in a, in a broader sense than the one introduced by Burnett. Uh, it's an interesting um, uh, debate, actually, and uh, we have just published a, a feature on, the, on this very, very topic last week. So, okay, Claudio, thank you very much for joining me today. It was a, a great pleasure talking to you about your, your work, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Maro, for having me.